0: In our first sermon on the Olivet Discourse, the foundation of interpretation was laid with the disciples' question. Mark and Luke focus on the when and sign of predicted events. But Matthew 24 verse 3 states the content of their question. These things are the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The sign of thy coming is the second visible physical return of Jesus Christ. And the end of the age is the end of all things with final judgment that leads, of course, to heaven or hell The disciples asked these three questions because they were confused. You remember when Jesus Christ sat on the Mount of Olives, he predicted only the destruction of the temple. And when they heard the prediction of the destruction of the temple, they respond, when will these things be and when will be the sign of your coming and end of the age? They added, because in their minds, the destruction of the temple is the end of the world and will be accompanied by the coming of Messiah to judge. So in the that Discourse Jesus Christ is going to respond and answer to their questions and as he does so he will one certainly teach the destruction of the temple when he physically and visibly returns again and the end of all things with final judgment and secondly he will teach that the destruction of the temple is distinct from And it's time separated from his second coming and the end of all things in the final judgment. And of course, as we go through the sections, we will seek to demonstrate that from the exposition of Scripture. The first section of his answer is given in verses 5 to 13. In this first section of his answer, we will ask three questions. One, what is this section teaching? Two, what are the signs of the end? Three, when will the end come? So first question, What is this section teaching? Every interpreter agrees in this first section, Christ is answering the last question of the disciples first. Everyone agrees this first section is teaching about the end everyone agrees upon this because the last question was when and the sign of the end of the age and in this first section the language is not of these things nor of coming but the end. So for example in verse 7 the end shall not be yet. Verse 13 He that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. And it's the same for the parallels. Matthew 24, verse 6. The end is not yet. Verse 13. He that shall endure unto the end. And verse 14. Then shall the end come. And if you read Luke 21, verse 9, the exact same. The end. So everyone agrees that this first section... Jesus is answering the last question of the disciples and it's all about the end. This is where the agreement ends. Now what is the end? And what is this section teaching about the end? The preterist, both full and partial preterist, Remember, preterist means in the past. The preterist teaches that the end is the end of the Jewish economy with the destruction of the temple. And therefore, the false teachers, the wars, the natural disasters, the spread of the gospel is all events leading up to and fulfilled by AD 70. The futurist believes that the end is the end time tribulations just before the secret rapture and the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the futurist believes that the false teachers, the wars, The natural disasters, the persecutions, and the Gospels are all signs saying that the end times tribulation is just about to happen. The historicist teaches that the end is the end of all things with final judgment. Therefore, this passage is not limited to the first century, nor limited to the final few years before Christ's return, but is teaching what happens in the world until the end of all things. And therefore, in the world, there's always going to be wars, persecution, natural disasters, um. and the gospel I believe the historicist is correct because I believe when it comes to the text consistency, that is what Jesus Christ is teaching. The first reason why is when Jesus Christ is speaking in this section about the end, as we've already said and I want to repeat it on purpose because he's answering the question of the disciples. When is the end of the age. And what is the end of the age? As we already taught last week, it's not the end of the Jewish dispensation with the destruction of the temple. It's not the end times tribulation. The end of the age is the end of all things with final destruction, sorry, final judgment that leads to heaven and hell. Let us prove that again. Matthew thirteen thirty nine, the parable of the tares, he explains what it means. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this age. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be boiling and gnashing of teeth. Clearly, what that means there—it's the end of all things with final judgment. Then Matthew thirteen forty-nine, the parable of the dragnet. What does it mean? Christ explains. So shall it be at the end of the age. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the fire, or the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, the end of the age in Matthew is the end of all things with final judgment. And then the Great Commission go into all the nations, disciple them, preach the word, Baptised in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Lo, and I will be with you. Even unto the end of the age. Jesus Christ did not promise to be with us until AD 70. He promised to be with us to the end of all things. And then he will be with us visibly and physically for all time. So the end of the age in Matthew is clearly not AD 70, not some future end times tribulation before a secret rapture, but is the end of all things with final judgment. Therefore, this entire section is speaking of what happens through all of history until the end of all things. The second reason why I believe this And this comes from an answer from the objection, from the preterist. The preterist says, okay, verse 10 says that the gospel should be preached first in all nations. And in Matthew's account, it says, Matthew 24, verse 14, (coughs) This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And the preterist says there are places in the New Testament where the whole world or nation means the Roman nations or the Roman world, and they're correct. For example, Colossians 1 verse 6, speaking of the gospel which has come unto you as it is, not will be, is in the whole world. Or Romans chapter 1 verse 5, Speaking of the gospel and the faith, which is, quote, among all nations. Not will be among all nations, which is among all nations. And therefore, they teach that Mark 13, Matthew 24, is only speaking about the gospel coming to the Mediterranean nations. How do we answer that? Well, the answer is simple if we're consistent as we interpret every passage of the Bible. Words only have meaning in context. We've said this a lot. In Romans chapter 3, it says, one, that we're justified not by the law of God, and two, when we're justified, it's by the law of faith. What does the word law mean? It's the same word. It has two meanings. In the first instance, the law of God there means the moral law of God which we obey, summarized by his Ten Commandments. And then in verse 28 there, the law of faith, it's not using it as a moral law, but as a principle that we are justified by faith. Or flesh. The vast, vast majority of the use of the word flesh means sinful human nature. And then John 1.14 says that Jesus Christ as the word made flesh. Words only have meaning in context. In flesh it sometimes means sinful human nature, and in John 14 it simply means human nature. So words have meaning in their context. So what does Matthew mean by world? What does Mark mean by these things? It means the universal world, not just the Mediterranean or the Roman world. For example, Matthew 26.13 Mary of Bethany by faith and we'll come to that in Mark of course is going to anoint our Lord for his burial. He is so impressed by her faith he says what you have done is going to be recorded and remembered for all time. And this is the language. Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world This woman hath done, be told for her, a memorial. Clearly that's not saying that what this woman has been done will be remembered in the Mediterranean and Roman world and no more. In this context, clearly the whole world is, everywhere this gospel goes in the entire world, people are going to remember Mary and Bethany in the whole world. Or Matthew 28, 18-20. All power and authority has been given unto me. Therefore go ye and what? Disciple all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Teaching them to obey everything I command you. I will be with you. What does nations mean there? Clearly not just the Mediterranean Roman nations. But it's a universal nations. Because the gospel is to go out to everyone to the end of time. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 which is written by Luke who also has an account of these things. The gospel is to go out to from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the uttermost parts of the earth goes back to Isaiah 49 where all the isles are going to come to Jesus Christ. That's bigger than the Roman nations because the original promise in Genesis 9 is this. Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Not just the Roman or the Mediterranean parts of Japheth, but all of Japheth. That's all the Gentile nations. And so, yes, world or nations can mean only the Roman world. When Caesar taxed all the world, wrote in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, that's true. But John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, it's not the Mediterranean world. And in my view, and in Mark, the nations, the world coming is universal and not merely the Mediterranean world. And again, that's proven by the context. It's the end of all things with final judgment. And the gospel is not just for the white European or the slightly coloured Jew and uh, Arabian Peninsula. for everyone in the world. And thirdly, the reason why we know this is speaking of the whole period of time until Christ returns to final judgment is because of the context of the disciples. The disciples believed as soon as Christ comes it's going to be peace on earth, no suffering. That's why when Christ said he's going to suffer and die let it not be. Because they wrongly think that when Christ comes, no suffering. And this is clear in Luke 19.11. When Jesus was nigh to Jerusalem, he told a parable because they, the disciples, thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. The kingdom of God here is not the kingdom of grace, which is in everyone who's born again. If you're born again, you enter the kingdom of God. It's speaking of the Consummated kingdom of God, the glory of the kingdom of God. They thought it would immediately appear, no suffering for the disciples, but they are wrong. In this world, ye shall have tribulation, John sixteen thirty three, and they need to learn, and all disciples need to learn. While we are the church militant on earth, there will always be wars, always be persecution, always be suffering, and the gospel will always go out, and we need to learn to endure. And therefore, for these three reasons and more, this first section is speaking about the whole history of the world until the end of all things with final judgment that leads to heaven and hell does it apply to things before AD 70? absolutely yes does it apply to things just before the Lord returns? absolutely yes but it's about the whole whole of time until the end of all things second question What are the signs of the end? I state this question this way because the vast majority of evangelicals in the United States of America believe this section is teaching these are signs that indicate the end time tribulation just before secret rapture is about to happen. If you read Futurists from the 19th century, if you read ones maybe you grew up with, with Hal Lindsay, Chuck Smith, if you listen to sermons by John MacArthur, if you've ever read the Left Behind series, which have sold over 80 million copies. All these teach, this section is teaching, the signs of the end times. In fact, most Bible publishers today are futurists. And when they publish their Bibles and their study Bibles, many of them, can be helpful, put headings and subheadings in your Bible texts. And if you look at your Bible or your study Bible, Before this, you might see the heading, The Sign of the Times, or The Sign of the End Times. It's interpreting it before you've even read it. And yet in this section, not merely is the end, not the end times tribulation, but the end of all things, but Jesus Christ explicitly and clearly says the things in this passage are not signs and indications of the end. Verse 7. And when you shall hear of the wars and rumors of wars, be you not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. And if you know English grammar, you know there are words to connect sentences to the same thought. For, and And so on. And here you have the whole united composition that in this section, these are all things that are going to happen, but the end is not here. So, whereas the futurists say these are teaching, these are all signs of the end times, Jesus Christ is saying clearly these are not signs of the end times. How can you have such a difference of opinion? Because when you already have your system of eschatology and you force it into the text, rather than come to the text and say, I will believe whatever you say, God, and then you have your understanding. Sadly, our futurist brothers see the signs of the end times where Jesus says, these signs... Are not signs of the end times. But what Jesus is doing here has been pastoral and practical. You disciples who are before me, you think that the kingdom of glory is going to come now. You think you're just going to enter a peaceful world with no suffering and and no war and no chaos and no destruction and no persecution. You've got it wrong. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. And all these things are all going to happen, but it's not the end. So when you see these things, it is not the end. Let's look at it closer. What's the first command in the Olivet Discourse? Take heed, verse 5. See, watch, look closely, be on your guard, be alert. From what? Any who deceive you. Who cause you to wander away. To be led astray from the truth. How would they be led away from the truth? He says in verse 6. For many shall come in my name and say I am. The italics is not in the original text. And shall deceive many. When you put Matthew, Matthew is saying, people are going to come say, I am the Christ. Mark's emphasis is not saying someone's, I'm the Messiah, but I come in the name of the Messiah and speak. And Luke does both. So this verse teaches that there are going to be false teachers. Some are going to claim to be the Messiah himself. Others are going to say, I come in his name and teach by his authority. But either way, they're all going to teach false doctrines and lead people astray. And interestingly enough, Luke tells us the content of their false doctrine. False teachers say the end of the world is here. Luke chapter 21, verse 8. Take heed that ye be not deceived, For many shall come in my name. So they're going to teach in my name. Saying, I am. And the time draweth near. What time? The time of the end. Go ye not therefore after them. So if anyone comes to you and says, It's the end of all things. The time has come upon us. It's drawing near. You're being deceived. Don't go after them. Later in that, what's it going to say? No one knows the day. Not the angels. Not even Jesus himself. Never mind any man who's done wonderful mathematical calculations and vocabulary, alphabetic um, diagrams on YouTube. If anyone says the time is near, it's the end of all things, do not believe them. You're being deceived. And this, of course, includes any kind of false teaching in error. And this is not limited to any time period. Jesus is saying, you are always going to have false teachers. But it's not the end. Josephus records before AD 70, there was a rise of people who said they speak in the name of Jehovah. And some even says, I am the Messiah and I'm going to destroy Rome. There were false teachers and it was not the end. Then the early church happened. And there's so many heresies left, right, and center. John Damascus, the last of the church fathers, he writes in a book, 103 heresies known to him. It's not exhaustive. It's not the end. Or the rise of um, the Roman Catholic Church and the denial of justification by faith alone, the denial of the grace of God alone, the denial of the Bible alone. It's not the end. Or when the Reformation happened, there were people who were saying that uh, we should be released from everything. We should walk about naked with no clothing. We have secret revelations in the hearts. That was the Anabaptist teaching. False teachers. But it wasn't the end. Or John Bunyan in Grace Abounding speaks about the, the heretics that's happened in England. The fifth monarchies and uh, all the kinds of names of all the heretics it's not the end or the 19th century with the rise of mormonism and jehovah's witnesses and Seventh Adventists it's not the end or today the social gospel liberalism postmodernism in the church health wealth and prosperity apostasy here apostasy there apostasy everywhere it's not the end There's going to be more and always be false teachers and false teachings until the end. Do not be deceived. Secondly, wars and rumors of wars. Verses 7 to 8. And when you shall hear of wars and the rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. There's always going to be war. Nation against nation, kingdom against nation, politics against other political spheres, cultural, religious, uh, just wars everywhere. These things must be. Why? It's a sinful world. Man is fallen. Man is selfish. Man is prideful. Man wants gain. Man wants destruction. Man, as Romans 3 says, are swift to shed blood. That's why. It must needs be, Acts 17, because God draws the boundaries of nations and sometimes they change for his purposes. It must needs be because God's providential sovereignty for the good of his people means nations change. But it's not the end. And sadly today you can read books and you can go on the internet and oh, did you hear what Israel's doing? Oh, did you hear about Iran's latest military plots? What about Russia? Or as John MacArthur says, an African alliance growing together. It's interesting, America's never the problem. Of all the research I've done, America's always innocent. The African alliance are going to go against Israel. Russia and the Middle Eastern alliances are going to go against Israel. China and the Asian alliances are going to go against Israel. The the European empire of the EU is going to go against Israel. But America is innocent. Why is that? Because the futurists are all American. (laughs) But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, it must needs be. It is not the end. If Iran was to attack Israel tomorrow, how many people would say, the signs of the end times, the signs of the end times? If the EU stopped being separate nations and became one nation, it's a sign of the end times, it's the sign of the end times. No, it's always happened. Rome fell. The barbarians from the north came down and they sacked and burnt Rome. And the Christians were all saying it's the sign of the end times. And Augustine says you're completely misunderstanding the Bible and your theology. And so he wrote the book, The City of God, to teach the Christians that even the great Roman Empire, even though it was destroyed, wars and rumors of wars, it's not the end. When the French Revolution happened, Christians in Europe were saying, it's the end. It was not the end. When the world wars came, everyone was saying, it's the end of the world. It was not the end. For 30-odd years, the Cold War was happening and rife and nuclear threats, and Christians were saying, it's the end, it's the end. It was not the end. And if any wars happen in the next few decades or century, just because there's wars and rumours of wars It is not the end. Do not be troubled, Jesus says. Are you troubled when there's wars and rumors of wars? Don't get me wrong. Wars destroy and hurt. I'm not talking about that kind of trouble. I mean, are you spiritually troubled? Don't be. Because it's not the end. Thirdly, natural disasters. Verse 8b. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. And look, adds this: fearful sights and great signs in heaven. It's not the end. It's a fallen world. There's always going to be earthquakes. The earthquake that destroyed much of Portugal in the 1700s. It was not the end. The great Earthquakes of this nation in California, it was not the end. There's always going to be famines. In Acts chapter 11, it speaks of Agabus prophesying of a great famine in the Roman world. It was not the end. The potato famine in Ireland that killed over a million people, destructive, but it was not the end. Volcanoes came in AD 60s, uh, destroying Pompeii, but it was not the end. Great signs in heaven, there's going to be things happening in the heavens, comets or moons or blood moons, it's not the end. How often is blood moons used as a sign of the end times? But blood moons happen all the time. I checked on the internet, the next blood moon is the 26th of May 2021. TV was opened. I guarantee you there's going to be futurists and evangelicals say it's the sign of the end times because in May 26, blood moon. A blood moon means a total eclipse where the moon looks red. That's all. There's always going to be great signs, but the end has not come. Fourthly, persecution. It says here the end of verse 8. These are the beginning of sorrows. And our dear futurist brothers take this to say, see, when these things start to begin, it's the end of the world. It's not saying that at all. The context as a whole says it's not the end. Sorrows means literally birth pangs. A woman going into labour and it's very painful. Jesus is saying, see all the things I've just described the wars, the natural disasters, the false teachers. These are only the beginnings of what people will suffer. It's like a woman going into labor. She begins going into labor, it's very painful, they suffer, and they don't know when it's going to end. Is it going to be three hours, ten hours, twenty four hours, thirty six hours? They don't know. What do they need to do? Endure it. I say that respectfully, mothers. And so Jesus is saying, see the war, see the false teachers, see the see the natural disasters. That's not even the tip of the iceberg for the church. The tip of the iceberg is serious persecution. Because that's the context. And when you're persecuted, don't think it's the end. What do you do, verse 13? Just like a woman in labour, you endure the suffering until the end. That's what the beginning of sorrows means. Grammatically and contextually, without forcing one's opinion on the text. Because persecution is the greatest suffering a saint will ever have. False teaching, wars, natural disasters, I do not deny the great suffering that comes with these things. But it's nothing compared to being rounded up and tortured. And as it says in our text, even your own family will deny you, kick you out the home, and give you to the authorities for punishment. As Matthew ten says, "I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Father against son." mother against daughter, brother against brother. Why? Because in some family homes around the world, they will be converted and it costs them everything. Ask a Muslim who's converted. Ask someone who's in communist China who's converted. Ask someone in any time period of church history in nations that hate the church what it means to be converted to Christ. You can lose your family. You can lose your nation. You can lose your home. You can lose Everything.
1: And that's what's always going to
0: happen. Before AD 70, the Jews persecuted the church. The Romans persecuted the church. The first martyr in AD 12 sorry, the first martyr was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And then the first apostle martyred was James in Acts chapter 12. You have Paul being arrested and before the councils of Felix and Agrippa. You have church history where um, all the apostles, of course Judas suicide, apostate, um, John lived to an old age, but every one of them else died by martyrdom. But it's for all time. Because in the early church under the Romans from the end of the 1st century to the beginning of the 4th century with Constantine suffered greatly. The rise of the Roman Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, The rise of Islamic nations going to North Africa and to the Byzantine Empire. Great slaughter and sufferings. You think of the Reformation time in England. 300 martyrs under Bloody Mary. Or the Covenanters where our denomination descends. The thousands and thousands and thousands during the killing times. Or you think about the martyrs and the saints today. In Iran or Saudi Arabia or in China since the 1940s. Or, or read the Korean Pentecost. And, and read account after account of persecution and suffering and slaughter. The end is not yet. Degrees may rise, degrees may lower. But the end is not yet. Jesus said, don't be deceived. All these things will all happen until the end of time with final judgment. And when you see these things, don't think it's the sign of the end of the world. It's not. These things must happen. Do not be troubled. I'm speaking in the United States of America here, not another nation, so I must speak to you as Americans. And I don't mean to be xenophobic, and I hope I don't come across as xenophobic. The great bastion of futurism is United States of America. And in the United States of America, every age since it got popular in the 1800s has believed these are the signs of the end times. In 1988, most of the famous evangelicals believed the end of the world was going to be in 1988. Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, they all prophesied of it. There was a book written, 88 Reasons the Secret Rapture is Coming in 1988. And much of its exposition, the Olivet Discourse because in 1987 there was wars and rumours of wars false teachings were rising political things were going on natural disasters were increasing persecution around the world was increasing therefore there must be the end and what happened in 1988? nothing, the end is not yet so they said we miscalculated it was actually 1989 and they started preaching that And what happened in 1989? The end is not yet. And it's been over 35 years. And still, futurists in their books, in their sermons, look, Biden's president. Russia's gaining in power. Iran is against Israel like never before. The EU is becoming more united and strengthened. There's going to be a one world government. There's there's an economy. We're all being controlled by vaccines. It's the signs of the end times. And you completely disregard what Jesus is actually teaching. These things are always going to happen in a fallen world. The end has not come. Do not be deceived. Take heed. Be on your guard. Be not troubled. So when will the end come? He gives us positive, positive teaching here. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. So when the gospel around all the nation and does its work, then it's the end. And Matthew twenty four fourteen confirms that interpretation. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. There's your only sign. Once the gospel has universally come into the world and God's will has been done and all the elect have been drawn in, then will be the end of the world. Now when is that? Only a fool would answer because what would Jesus say in Mark 13? No man knows that day. The angels don't know. The Son of Man doesn't know. We just know that when the gospel went in all the world and all the nations, then will be the end. But we can clearly state it's nowhere near the end. There are 6,825 people groups still unreached with the gospel. How many people have been reached with the gospel in Iran or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, nations where the gospel is illegal? Not many people have been reached. How many people in North Korea have been reached? There are genuine Christians in North Korea, don't get me wrong, but how many of that populace have heard the clear gospel of free grace? Very, very, very little. I remember going to the Bible Museum in Washington And there's, I think, five floors, six floors, maybe, of exhibitions. But the very last one is like a library, a large, large library. And it's like a, a book to show either a New Testament, a gospel, or the Bible has been translated into a language. And I think at least a third of that library was blank to demonstrate these are still all the languages in the world where they don't even have a gospel in their own tongue. So how long this is, I do not know, but there's still much, much, much work to be done for the gospel. But the question may be asked, how successful will the gospel be on all the world before he comes? Well, three things must happen before he comes. Once there'll be a universal advance of the gospel, where well, there'll be great success. That needs to happen. For example... Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the Governor among the nations. Or Psalm seventy-two, where it says even the kings will give gifts to Christ. Or Isaiah forty-nine, where even kings will be like nursing fathers and queens nursing mothers to the church. Where the nations and governors support the church. They think Christianity is true, they serve the Saviour, and they promote his true religion. Oh, Revelation chapter eleven, the time when the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That has not happened yet. The second thing that needs to happen is the conversion of the Jews. Remember Matthew twenty three, thirty nine from last week? Jesus says, I will not come again to this world until you see me. And when you do see me, what will you say? Psalm 118. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Romans chapter 11, that says that's the conversion of the Jews. All Israel shall be saved. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 59 verse 20 to 21. Which says... There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away unworthiness from Jacob for this is my covenant unto them which I shall take away their sins. Have the Jews been converted yet? Clearly not. It's unfulfilled. And the third thing that must happen is a final apostasy. A final apostasy after these things. For example, in Revelation chapter 20 it speaks of a millennium. It's not a literal thousand years. If you know Bible prophecy in general and Revelation, numbers are just signifying things. They're not literal. Seven and twelve horns and heads are not literal. Beasts which have multiple heads. It's numbers for significance. And a thousand years simply means, in the Greek, a long extended period of time. But what will happen near the end of that time, Revelation promises, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be lifted out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. That simply means before Christ returns, after that advance, after the conversion of the Jews, there will be a falling away. And that's why Jesus in Luke 18 says, when the Son of Man comes, shall we find faith on the earth. And Greek can say yes, maybe or no. But the Greek language of that verse is no. Why? Because there's been apostasy. These things must happen before the end. And in 2022 there's not been the success of the gospel yet. Lord willing it grows. two, the conversion of the Jews has not happened. And three, after a period of gospel success, there has not been a final apostasy. And therefore we know the end is not yet. But how do we apply this all? What does it mean for us? Well, Jesus applies it for us. The end of verse 13. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Endure means to remain, to be faithful, to don't go astray. That's what we need to do. Brother and sister in Jesus Christ, in your lifetime, in our children's lifetime, and in our grandchildren's lifetime, there's always going to be false teachers, there's always going to be wars, there's always going to be natural disasters, there's always going to be persecution. Whatever degree, whatever extent, whatever in one year, more than another year, these things are always going to happen, and we must not be deceived. These are not the signs of the end. We must remain, be faithful, be godly. The problem in America and the problem in Europe is this. We think persecution is abnormal. If we just get the little sparks of persecution in America, it's the end times. But persecution is normal. Non-persecution is abnormal. The lost beatitude, and I'm using that term lost metaphorically, is the last one. Everyone loves, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are those who see God. What about this one? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And as Christians, a baker is arrested because he will not sell a cake. Rightly so. Rightly so. And he suffers and is persecuted, and we pray for them and we do not want persecuted. But it's not the end, it's Christ's promises fulfilled. Or the government and the media and the education systems are all anti-Christianity. It's not the sign of the end times. It's called the world hating Christ. We must remember, blessed are they who are persecuted for his name's sake. And we can endure persecution with a love for the gospel. Because the one thing we know is that despite wars, despite natural disasters, despite um, persecution, the gospel cannot be stopped. It will continue to the end. Because Jesus says, all power and authority is given unto me, therefore nothing will stop it. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Brethren and sister... Are gates offensive or defensive structures? They're defensive. You build a gate. How are you conquering any army? You're not. You're defensive. Because Satan is on the defensive and Christ is on the offensive. But Christians today, we flip it around. The church is on the defensive and Satan is on the offense. No, 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 no. I will Build my church, growing, expansion, offensive, and the gates, defensive structures, shall not prevail against it. And therefore, our job is to be faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel, going to all the nations, missionaries, mothers in the home, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching and preaching the gospel, children being saved. Outsiders being saved and being sanctified and enduring suffering, enduring persecution, counting out all joy, seeing the trial of our faith for our good, seeing all things, including persecution, working for our good. Always with the hope of eternal glory. And so Christ has passed over here. He's very practical, he's very upbeat. These are not the signs of the end. But they will happen. But endure. And the gospel in all nations, all around the world before the end. So be faithful, brother and sister. Love that gospel. Believe that gospel. Love that gospel out. And be part of the Great Commission. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has not left us in the dark and given us a false view of reality. We are thankful he is truth, his word is truth, and his sermons are truth. Please help us, O Father, to be faithful and endure to the end. Help us never to be deceived, led astray, wander away. Help us to remain faithful. And help us to be gospel-centered at all times. Believing in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, we pray that every individual in this room would know that gospel by faith; that all of our children and grandchildren would know it, and everyone who we're connected to. And that no matter what happens in the world, Thou will keep our eyes on Christ, and we will then endure to the end. But we do pray for the advance of the gospel, the conversion of the Jews and the faithfulness of thy persecuted church all around the world. Be with her and bless her. In Christ's name, amen.